right out. Everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Joined in the studio is my co-host, Austin. What is up, man? Hey, hey. Today, we are covering the very grisly Icebox murders. Now, this case is a really bizarre one because it centers around the Rogers family. And it's an elderly couple that is murdered in probably the most brutal way possible. And then their son mysteriously disappears. And this all takes place in the 1960s. And what's interesting about this one, there's actually potentially a connection to the JFK assassination. And this case is technically unsolved to this day, which is honestly quite crazy considering that there really ends up only being one suspect. It's crazy that to this very day, the authorities have not been able to figure out who murdered Fred and Edwina Rogers. Before we get into the episode, though, I just want to remind everybody that we do have a few new items available at MileHarmers.com in the Lights Out collection. So take advantage of those because once they are sold out, we will not be restocking those designs. Also, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Hellfresh and Stamps.com. And I just want to remind everybody that one way you can support the show is just making sure that you're following us on Spotify, subscribed on YouTube, and if you're feeling extra generous, go over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe to us over there. Even if you don't necessarily use Apple Podcasts, those things really do help the show out. It helps it grow. It helps it reach new listeners. So if you wouldn't mind doing that for us, we'd really appreciate it. With that being said, I'm not going to waste any more time. So let's just go ahead and dive into the Icebox Murders. Murders were so bizarre, they made headlines around the country. The murders of Mr. and Mrs. Fred Rogers remain a mystery. Do you know much more than you did last night? Some, Bob. Uh, the laboratory at this time are working on some instruments that they gathered at the house. Which is a hammer, a razor, a saw. It was the summer of 65, but on a quiet street just west of downtown, Innocence was shattered. We just opened the refrigerator up, you know, just out of curiosity. And when we opened it up, well, all we could see was just meat packed in there. The son was declared legally dead in 1975. To this day, police still don't know why the quiet couple was murdered. So to really understand this case as a whole, we have to take a look at the history of the Rogers family. So Charles Frederick Rogers was born in Houston, Texas on December 30th. 1921 and he grew up in the neighborhood of montrose with his parents fred and edwina rogers fred and edwina made an honest living at first fred was actually a real estate agent and worked as a bookie on the side and edwina was a sales representative when they wanted to make a little bit more money they occasionally committed fraud and held illegal gambling operations in their house with neighbors and friends they had a daughter named betty as well but she sadly passed away when she was only 10 years old. All four of the family members were actually in a car crash, and Betty was the only one that lost her life. So Charles grew up as an only child after that. Some accounts say that Fred and Edwina got along for the most part, and they lived the typical quiet suburban life. But these were just claims from family and friends who never saw the whole picture of what was actually going on inside the Rogers household. Other accounts said that Fred and Edwina were raging alcoholics and they both hated each other. 
They even used separate refrigerators in the kitchen for their food. I don't know about you, but I think that says a lot. And apparently Charles had to grow up in a house filled with violence. When his parents fought, Charles was always dragged into the family drama. He also suffered emotional and physical abuse at the hands of Fred and Edwina. So from early on, his relationship with his parents degraded pretty quickly. Even when Charles went to school, he didn't find any peace there either. He was small for his age, so other kids bullied him. He struggled to make friends through his childhood, and by his teenage years, he accepted that he was just going to be a loner. Socially, he struggled, but he was known for being extremely smart. When he was 21 years old, he enrolled in two different universities. In 1942, he went to Texas A&M. Once he got there, though, he didn't really like it, so he dropped out soon after enrolling. And then he enrolled at the University of Houston, where he ended up graduating early with a bachelor's degree in nuclear physics. Charles was really known for how intelligent he was, even from a young age. And by the time he graduated from college, he could actually speak seven different languages. I think that's one of the most impressive skill sets is to be able to speak multiple languages and it's really a shame here in the United States that that's, there's not a, more of an emphasis put on learning a, new, you know, learning a second language. I mean, you go anywhere else in the world and pretty much everybody at least speaks one other language. Right. I've been trying to, um, I had to take Spanish in, in college, but. Oh, you I, took Spanish I, in college? Yeah. And now I'm back to practicing it every day because I feel like, I don't know, it makes me a little sharper. Yeah. Staying on top of it. Are you. I'm barely fluent. I'd be like, if I were to travel to Mexico, I could communicate like basic things yeah but, I but like long form conversation it. and stuff like i struggle it's so fast you know that's right. the thing about learning different languages is like on paper i can read and write it really well but listening to it at the pace that people speak it is really difficult yeah so knowing seven seven fluent, is really impressive yeah. yeah even the pope i know has to speak a lot of languages something like seven or eight as well because you know travel around a lot and speak to a bunch of different people well it makes sense i mean especially if you're going to you know all these different countries where catholicism is the primary religion so it makes sense that the pope would want to be able to speak to those people exactly for me i took the required spanish one and two in high school that's most people yeah and it's just like looking back on it now i wish i would have taken that a lot more seriously and you know, now there's there's different ways. Rosetta Stone, Babel's another one um, that you can learn Spanish. And it's just time for me, like trying to find the time to learn a language is, a, you know, yeah. I barely have time to learn an instrument. You know what right, I mean? So honestly. to throw a language in there. I think it's one of those things that if you can start young, I want to start my daughter like learning basic Spanish, like from an early age, Shit. you know, even if it's just like basic words and stuff so that hopefully it just comes more naturally to her as she grows older. Because I think Spanish, especially for Americans is a great language to to learn being so close to Mexico and obviously it's a big language that's spoken here so so yeah to speak seven languages though I mean that just lends to how smart Charles was in addition to learning languages Charles also had an immense passion for engineering and radio systems by the time he graduated college World War II had just begun even though he was talented and could have used his degree to get a job he ended up enlisting in the US Navy while enlisted, he learned how to fly military aircraft and served as a pilot, and he later worked in the Office of Naval Intelligence. After the war was over in 1945, Charles moved back in with his parents in Houston, and while he was there, he found a well-paying job working as a seismologist for Shell Oil Company. So this is a big job, um, and a seismologist, if you don't know, they, uh, they send frequencies or vibrations into the ground, and they receive it 
through geophones, you kind of get a 3D image back, and that's how they find oil beneath the surpa- surface in some With, like, sonar? Places. Yeah, it's essentially sonar. That's think of it like that. So, that, obviously, that's probably a high-paying job. You need somebody extremely smart to do it, because you're basically telling the oil company where to drill. So, they count on you for finding it exactly where it is, and uh, it's kind of like a petroleum engineer yeah. nowadays, I guess. I mean, I'm sure they still hire seismologists as well. Yeah, I think the it might be a little bit different now. Um, but yeah, that was, I mean, that was like crucial for finding, that's people's livelihoods were finding the oil, right? So um, he was paid really well to do that. And uh, I'd say not everyone could do that job because reading the data is kind of hard. Yeah. So you have to be a fairly smart guy to, to do that. I mean, not only is he a pilot, he's a seismologist. Yeah. The guy's just racking up accolades left and right. Yep. So he ended up working for Shell Oil Company for about nine years, but then in 1957, he just suddenly quit. And he never gave his employers an explanation for quitting, which I think is very interesting to think about, especially as we get later on in the story. But he was paid well, and from all accounts, he was very good at his job. His coworkers claimed he was brilliant, in fact, and he had a talent for finding minerals, oil, and gas while he worked as a seismologist. After leaving Shell, he worked as a freelancer for a while, picking up a few contract jobs here and there in order to make some extra money. Private companies and landowners would seek him out because they heard that he was one of the best at finding resources beneath the surface of the earth. But after a while, for whatever reason, Charles didn't want to work anymore. In his spare time, he decided, you know what, I'm going to join the Civil Air Patrol, which if you're not familiar with the Civil Air Patrol, it's a nonprofit membership club for people interested in planes and aviation. And actually, my brother Joel, he was in Civil Air Patrol for a little while. It seemed like a really cool experience. That's awesome. I know he enjoyed it. But this is where he supposedly met David Ferry, a suspected conspirator in the JFK assassination, which is this is pretty interesting. This is where that connection comes in. And apparently, I believe this is more of a rumor than confirmed fact, but Lee Harvey Oswald was also in the same Civil Air Patrol unit in the 1950s so that's some very interesting company right there right and and you wonder if there's any truth to that and what was the extent of their relationship yeah how talk yeah and i don't know he was into radios so i think as we'll get into this story a little bit later you'll start to see uh how that kind of comes into play just yeah it's more like who's this guy talking to really through all these radios So for Charles, his flying hobby was a good way to socialize. And he also spent time tinkering with ham radios and speaking in different languages to people around the world, which ham radios are are real interesting. Um, My dad actually has his ham radio license. You actually have to get a license in order to operate ham radios. And um, I remember when we were younger, he was really into it. He'd have like a ham radio in his truck and like, Sweet. he'd like, you know, talk to different, different people around the world. And I, I never really knew what about, I think it was just more of like part of like a ham radio club. Like there's different clubs oh, that okay. they kind of talk to each other from around the United States and he could listen into different types of, of air traffic and things like that. But yeah, that's, it's, it's a technology that's been around for a long, long time. I know that. I don't think it's as popular anymore, though. No. I never hear about people really getting into ham radios. I mean, most people don't even listen to the radio in their car now. Right, yeah. (laughs) You know, so just the radio in general. It's like you're you're usually streaming it from something. Right. But, I mean, if if the world were to collapse and these major corporation servers go down, I mean, we need the ham radio, baby. That's where you're going to communicate. All right, you've convinced me. Back to the the airwaves we go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
So by June 23, 1965, Fred and Edwina's nephew, Marvin, started to notice that he hadn't heard from his aunt and uncle in a really long time. In fact, he hadn't seen them in weeks, and he hadn't talked to them on the phone for quite a long time. And every time he did try to call their landline, no one picked up. So he obviously knew that they were elderly and perhaps something had gone wrong. So he decided to contact the local police and request a welfare check at 1815 Driscoll Street. So dispatch sent out two officers and they headed over to the Rogers residence and knocked on the door. Charles' car was still parked in the driveway, but the house was dead silent and no one came to answer the door. After waiting around, they kept knocking on the doors and the windows, but still no one answered. At this point, they were thinking something was wrong, so they tried all the doors and windows, but couldn't find any that were unlocked. And that's when Chief Officer Charles Bullock decided, you know what, something obviously has gone wrong, so I'm going to go ahead and kick in the front door. As the frame broke and the door swung open, the two officers immediately felt that something was off. On the other side of the door, there was a bunch of plant pots that had been stacked up, almost like somebody had been barricading the front door. The officers then headed inside to make sure everything was okay. Other than those plant pots at the front door, they really didn't notice anything else in the house that seemed out of place at first. They called out to Fred and Edwina, and they asked if anyone was inside, but there was no response. They searched the house, but it was completely empty. In the kitchen, they actually found a plate of uneaten food. It made it look like someone had recently been there, but had left. Officers thought that Fred and Edwina were no longer in the house, and maybe they had just gone out to run some errands. But the officers soon found that Fred and Edwina were actually still inside of the home. As they rummaged around, one of the officers headed to the fridge to steal a beer, which I'm sure that's not uh, quite protocol there. Yeah, right. Ah, uh, you know what? Nobody's home. We'll just grab a beer. Yeah, just smash in the door, steal yeah, some right, beers before we leave. But as he cracked open the door to the fridge, he found unwrapped raw pieces of meat on the shelves. At first, the officer thought the meat looked like the bones of a hawk at first. There was no packaging, and he thought it was a shame that this cut of meat would go to waste. But then he noticed more pieces of meat were just stacked on top of each other, scattered along the other shelves. And as he looked closer, he noticed the meat wasn't processed like the meat from the grocery store. And it wasn't stored in any containers or cling wrap. And the cuts were jagged. And the bones, he realized, were way too long to be from a bird. As the officer went to close the fridge door, he glanced down at the see-through vegetable crisper boxes at the bottom of the fridge. And through the foggy plastic crisper drawer, he saw what looked like a severed human head. He noticed that there were wet strands of hair stuck to the sides of the drawer. And through the hair, Edwina's eyes glared right back into his. That scene right there just sends chills down my spine. I couldn't even imagine. I mean, it's such a flip, right? You're going into the fridge. That's like the last thing you'd expect to find inside of a fridge. Yeah, and it's like, oh, the house is like the plant pots were kind of... Right. But you kind didn't of fishy, really but think anything yeah. else was going on, and then you find the most horrific shit inside the fridge. And then you're like, oh my god. Yeah. The two officers, obviously, after finding the severed head, ran back to their squad car and radioed the station. At that point, they called a forensics team to come in and identify the pieces of meat that they had found in the fridge. After the forensics team showed up at the house, every last piece of that meat was collected on all of the shelves of the freezer compartment 
laid the body parts that were each washed off and unwrapped. Some of the parts that were sawed off were small, like individual knuckles or toes. So the investigators laid out a black plastic sheet on the linoleum floor and began pulling each body part out. And they started organizing them, one by one. At first they thought it was only the remains of one body, but there were far too many body parts for one person. The tests that they ran on these body parts eventually concluded that these were the remains of Fred and Edwina Rogers. As they removed all the pieces from the fridge, they would soon find Fred's severed head stuffed behind Edwina's in the crisper box. The tests also discovered that the couple had been murdered three days before the remains were discovered, which means that the elderly couple was murdered on Father's Day, 1965. Pathologists then took the remains and tried to perform an autopsy, except the conditions of the remains made this incredibly hard. And again, their technology was quite limited in the 1960s, but they were able to discover the cause of death. Each had actually been murdered differently. Fred was beaten to death with a claw hammer, and Edwina was also beaten with a claw hammer, but this actually wasn't her cause of death. It looked like she had first been shot in the head, execution style, and then the killer beat her dead body with the hammer. After both were dead, the killer gouged out Fred's eyes and then cut off his penis. They also noticed both victims had their organs removed, but there was no trace of their entrails. Eventually, though, investigators noticed that the sewage system of the whole block was backed up. As it turned out, the killer had forcefully removed the victim's entrails and then stuffed them into the toilet and attempted to flush them into the sewage drain. Pathologists also noticed that the remains had been carefully drained of their blood and dismembered before being stored in the kitchen refrigerator. And they also believed that whoever dismembered the bodies had a good understanding of human anatomy. Each cut had been deliberate, and each one looked like a professional butcher had cut away the body parts. But the strange part was, investigators noticed that some of the body parts were nowhere to be found. Fred's eyeballs and penis were never recovered along with a few other random bones. And they also noticed that the house was completely spotless. There were no traces of blood stains or body parts except for one small area. The house was a bungalow and Charles' bedroom was up the stairs. A tiny trail of blood had come down the stairs from his bedroom and that was the only trace of blood they found in the entire house. But it was just enough for police to start connecting the dots. By the next morning, police had only one suspect in mind, the couple's son, Charles Rogers. But the thing about Charles is that they had no idea where he was. At first, police were concerned about his well-being. I mean, as far as they knew, he might have been another victim, possibly dismembered and stored somewhere they hadn't discovered yet. But soon they found a piece of evidence that quickly changed their opinion on Charles. Tucked away in his bedroom, they found a keyhole saw. So a keyhole saw, which I didn't know what it was, or they're sometimes called compass saws. Um, you've probably seen them before if you've ever done drywall work. They're kind of small, thin. Uh, they have a thin snout and tiny little ridges. Yeah, they're usually cutting holes for switch boxes and drywall, but obviously police thought it was for something else entirely. Right. So it didn't take very long for investigators to notice that the ridges on the saw matched the cuts on the flesh and dismembered body parts they found in the fridge. They also realized that the killer might have thrown the saw into Charles' bedroom to frame him, which is also possible. But the more that they looked into Charles' history and the relationship that he had with his parents, the more he looked like their prime suspect. Police reached out to family, friends, and neighbors to try and figure out the Rogers family dynamic. 
and after interviewing a handful of people, police realized that the Rogers family hadn't gotten along at all. Their history painted the picture of a completely dysfunctional family filled with abuse. But as Charles got older, he was able to defend himself. Not only that, but he wasn't afraid to get into screaming matches or physical altercations with his elderly parents. So it was very clear that the entire household was a completely toxic situation. After leaving his job, he lived with his parents for years. And even though their relationship was always in turmoil, Charles kept on living at the house. But he spent most of his time locked inside his bedroom when he was at home. He was such a recluse that many of the neighbors didn't even know that Charles lived in the house at all. The neighbors that knew of him called him a complete hermit. When he did leave the house, he made sure to leave before sunrise and return after sunset so it was always dark out. Even when he was home, he rarely talked to his parents. And they mostly communicated by passing handwritten notes underneath his bedroom door. Evidence also suggested that Edwina hadn't actually spoken face-to-face with her son in five years. Sometimes when he was at home, he would read the notes passed under the door. But if he was out and they wanted to speak with him, they'd have to wait until he got home and responded to the notes. And sometimes he wouldn't respond at all. My guess is that Charles probably would leave and come back into the house after his parents would go to bed. I mean, being elderly, probably went to bed at a you know, semi-decent time. And so it makes sense that he just wanted to avoid all contact with them altogether. But it's like, why do you go live with them at all anyway? Yeah, he must have like some decent money from working. Right. As a seismologist. Yeah, I mean, from the Shell Oil Company. So it's like, why was he living at home? Yeah. I mean, from everything that we know about Charles, it's clear that he was a pretty strange cat. I mean, he's yeah. pretty, I mean, he's socially awkward. So maybe he was like too socially awkward to go and even like, rent your own place yeah like a bit too stunted emotionally maybe yeah and maybe he was just like his bedroom was his where he where he found peace and solitude you know it's just like what he became accustomed to yeah and sometimes like even though in abusive relationships and stuff like this yeah some people just don't know how to leave they'll just stay there for right right so maybe had grown used to it and that was his normal life yeah it's weird though to pass notes to your parents under the door especially at this age like right like that's really strange. Yeah, maybe if I threw a tantrum when I was like twelve, but, right? Yeah. And being elderly, I'm like, I'm wondering what the physical abuse entailed at that particular time, with, right? With his parents being, you know, up there in age, right? If Charles ever made too much noise in his bedroom, Edwina would take the handle of her broom and knock on the ceiling to get Charles to quiet down, instead of going up the stairs and asking him in person. When investigators looked further into the family turmoil, they noticed that Fred and Edwina had also been taking out loans in their son's name, and Charles would have to pay it all back. They also noticed that the house at 1815 Driscoll Street was actually owned by Charles. Even though most people thought Charles was living in his parents' house, it was actually the other way around. So maybe his parents were just literally draining his money, So, and he owns the house, so he has no money to go elsewhere. But yeah. it, it seems hard to believe, though. I mean, it seems like he probably would at least be able to get him out of the situation. But, may, you know, and like you said, maybe just the dynamics of the relationship, even though they were abusive and horrible to him, he knew that if I don't watch over them, nobody no, else well, will. Yeah, because they're elderly. He's their only son. Maybe, yeah, he felt he had a responsibility. It's a good point. It soon became clear that financially and emotionally, Charles did have motive to murder his parents. But investigators couldn't completely rule out other possible suspects. The killer had put so much time into draining the blood, gouging out the victim's eyes, cutting off Fred's genitals, and dismembering both bodies, as well as cleaning up the whole house, 
until it was almost spotless. So investigators thought that the killer either had to be someone who knew the victims personally or a deranged psychopath. They figured this was a lot of effort to go through in someone else's house, but they couldn't rule out the possibility of an outsider. The main question was, was Charles also a victim or was he the killer? They can't find Charles, so they can't confirm whether or not he's alive or dead. Right. So for all they know, he could be dead. He could have been kidnapped. It could have been somebody else that came in and, and took Charles or killed Charles and took him elsewhere. I mean, they really don't know. And since he was so secretive and he left the house when it was dark out, came back when it was dark, and some of the neighbors didn't even know he lived there, it's like, who do you contact to be like, he didn't have any friends, you know? So it's like, how do we even find this guy? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing about it, though, is like the meticulous way in which Fred and Edwina were killed. I think, you know, most authorities would say this had to have been somebody who had experience killing. I mean, to dismember somebody is, you know, it, it definitely takes some knowledge of the human anatomy. And I mean, it's a lot of work, especially with a handsaw to do that. Right. And he drained their blood. And like to drain the very blood. very meticulous and particular about it. Plus clean it up. Yeah. to the point where there's almost no evidence of the crime. So it seems like there is motive for Charles, but at the same time, when you look at Charles and what, I mean, we don't know that much about Charles, but we know what he did for a living and, you know, what colleagues said about him. It just, it, to me, it seems like there's something missing as far as the killer's skill set goes. But again, he spent a lot of time in his room, so could Charles have been researching this information and, you know, learning or practicing yeah he had a lot of free time because you know he wasn't really working anymore so so it's possible that he he may have learned this from somewhere the family's history of disorder made charles seem like the only person they could find with a motive so police issued an arrest warrant but technically they only claimed they wanted to bring him in because he was a material witness to the crime if he wasn't the killer then he might have known who was since it was his house and he lived there he was a solid eyewitness, if nothing else. And even if he wasn't, then why hadn't he been back to the house at all? Again, his car was still in the driveway and most of his belongings were still inside. The other problem was that they had no idea how to even start looking for him. Again, Charles didn't have a job and he rarely had any friends, and the only social crew the police knew about was the Civil Air Patrol. Since they knew he was a pilot, they sent out a message to all airfields to see if Charles had been spotted. But this was a dead end. No one ever spotted Charles at any of the nearby airfields after the message had gone out. And if Charles did murder his parents and flee in a plane, he would have been long gone by the time their investigation started days after the murder. Police then reached out to the media and news stations letting everyone know that they were looking for Charles Rogers. And if anyone saw him or knew his whereabouts, they should contact the police immediately. They also used the news to reach out to Charles and ask him to return home. But of course, this led absolutely nowhere. Weeks, months, and years passed, and there was still no sign of Charles. As far as the police knew, he had never returned to his home in Houston or reached out to any of his relatives. All of their leads brought them to dead ends. In 1972, the house at 1815 Driscoll Street was actually torn down with all the furniture still inside. At the turn of the century, developers built a condominium complex in its place. So by 1975, no one had heard or seen Charles Rogers. By this point, a U.S. court actually declared him dead in absentia. Fans of true crime probably know what in absentia 
means, but for those who don't, it's a Latin phrase that just means in absence, which means we haven't seen, no one's seen this guy, no one's reported ever seeing this guy in so long that we're just going to say he's dead now. For this, It's usually for the sake of some legal purposes, right. or what do we do with the stuff? Their belongings yeah. and, and things like that. So after the state declared him dead, they could probate his estate and finally do something with the money and property he had left behind. Even though the case officially went cold, the public still wanted answers. So some armchair detectives began digging into these brutal murders. And for the next several decades, new theories had come to light, and new evidence was later discovered. For some true crime enthusiasts, this was just the beginning. So there have been several books that have been written about this case in detail. And one book named The Icebox Murders was published in 2003. And it's known as one of the most thorough investigations into the case. It was written by a couple, actually. Hugh and Martha Gardiner. And they started researching the case nearly 35 years after the murders had occurred. The Gardiners had no law enforcement training at all. They were actually professional accountants, and they believed their in-depth research into accounting and paper trails helped them dive deeper into this case. They began retracing every step that the original investigators took, and they didn't accept anything as fact until they researched it for themselves. They really described their work as auditing the police reports. They did things like create maps of the neighborhood, measure sewer openings, and research city planning archives so they could look into the claim that the sewage lines were actually clogged with the victim's organs. One of the first things they discovered was that the sewage line the police claimed was filled with organs didn't even connect to the house at 1815 Driscoll Street. And this was just one of the many things that were inaccurate or overlooked by the police. I'm assuming they found archived information to confirm that. Yeah. But I'm just thinking because they did tear down the house and build the condominiums. Did the sewer line? Did the sewer change? line actually get moved because of that? Right. Yeah. Or altered in some way. So is that? I wonder. Yeah. From what I could find, I I wasn't sure. But um, as far as I knew, what they were researching was archived information. Yeah. So they must have been able to find, you know, from the time the house was originally built and through city records that the line was different. You know, they must have found where that clogged line was somehow. But this was just one of the many things that were inaccurate or overlooked by the police. And at the end of their research, they ended up interviewing over 100 people and put more than 5,000 hours into the case. And after doing years of research, they both came up with their own theories on what happened and why Charles killed his parents and how he managed to disappear into thin air. According to them, Charles had gotten to a point where the abuse and exploitation from his parents had gone too far. Again, he had dealt with this his whole life, and he finally had enough. His parents were raging alcoholics, and they physically and emotionally abused him his entire childhood. But the original investigation in the 1960s failed to paint an accurate picture of Charles. The Gardiners realized that many of the newspapers in the 1960s described him as a shut-in and rarely socialized. But as the Gardiners dug more into his background, they found out that he actually had a long-term girlfriend. He was also into real estate like his father and owned several properties that he would visit. Plus, he wasn't just into radios as a technical hobby. He actually used ham radios to socialize with people all over the world. He would also use his pilot's license and spend a lot of time flying to Mexico, especially around the Sierra Madre Occidental mountain range. And there, he would actually look for gold and silver deposits. And after looking deeper into who Charles was, they realized that the killings didn't match up with a typical violent crime. And the killings were actually closer to an organized crime hit. They believed it was money motivated above all else. 
Charles was pissed after finding out that his parents were defrauding him. They had forged his signature on deeds of the land that he had owned. His mother also leaned the house, which was his. But she told the neighbors and family members that they had owned the house and not Charles. She'd also take out loans against the house and pocket the money. And on top of all of this, Charles might have been sexually abused by his father, Fred. This is why his body was found with his eyes gouged out and his penis was cut off. Victims of sex abuse often target the genitals of their own victims. And it's interesting that the father's sex organs were targeted, but the mother's weren't. I'm not a psychologist, but I did read into this a little bit. One study that I read about, it showed that victims of sexual abuse that later become killers often have uh, three specific traits when they kill. One was a tendency to overkill. Two was perform postmortem sex with their victims. And three was to move the bodies to a different location from where the killing took place. So in this case, we don't know if postmortem sex occurred, but we do know that the other two were true. So it does kind of line up that possibly that uh, Fred might have abused his son. Yeah, that seems very probable. I'm just thinking, was it actually Charles or did Charles have somebody else do these murders? Because like you just said, they often move the body parts from, you know, the site of the murder. So were they murdered in that house or were they brought back there? The question is, I think it's more saying that where they were murdered. So let's say he murdered them in the bedroom or the bathroom or whatever. He then moved them to. Oh, okay. So so within like that, within the, okay. That makes sense. So the authors believe that Charles had murdered his parents for revenge and he had been planning their murders for a very long time, but they believed it wasn't like any other killing. Charles treated the murders like an engineering problem. He had to be precise and thorough. He just had to wait for exactly the right moment so he could disappear. This is how the gardeners believe the killings took place. So on Father's Day 1965, Charles asked his mother to come upstairs to his bedroom. This was rare because they hadn't spoken to each other face to face in years. Once she was up the stairs, he brought a gun to her head and pulled the trigger. After she fell to the floor dead, he headed downstairs. He then grabbed a claw hammer from the toolbox that belonged to a handyman that had been working on the house. Charles then entered his parents' bedroom, where he found his 81-year-old father in bed. He then dragged him out of the bed and across the floor. Then he proceeded to beat his father to death with a claw hammer. He also then returned to his mother's corpse and beat her dead body with the hammer as well. Once they were both dead, Charles dragged both bodies into the first floor master bathroom. He then drained their blood in the bathtub and dismembered the bodies there, while also removing his father's genitals and gouging his eyes out. He then neatly stacked their body parts in the kitchen refrigerator. After the killings, Charles didn't leave immediately. He stayed in the house for the next few days, actually, because he wanted to make sure that the house was spotless. He even staged some of the inside of the house to make it look like a robbery had occurred. He also left the gun that he used to kill his mother on the nightstand in his bedroom. And after putting everything in place, he locked the front and back doors and then slipped out a back window. The only thing he forgot was the food left behind on the kitchen table and the small trace of blood near his bedroom. A few years later, the Houston Chronicle ran an article in 1968 after the case went cold. In the article, they mentioned a significant piece of info that the police had withheld from the public. Supposedly a day after the murders, a man who looked like Charles Rogers entered a local office building. He looked nervous, but then he told them that he was a welder looking for a job overseas. When they asked him his name, he told them he was Anthony Pitts. 
Later, it was discovered that Charles' long-term girlfriend had worked in that exact same office building. She was expecting this man to show up, and the plan was to sneak him a set of keys to a getaway car. The secretary in the office, a woman known as Jean, handed him the keys to a 1959 Cadillac. From there, Charles supposedly drove the car south across the Mexican border at the town of Presidio, Texas, and then he headed to Chihuahua, Mexico. Apparently, the police never figured this out. All they knew was that a man named Anthony Pitts showed up at the girlfriend's office, and then Charles simply disappeared. The Gardeners also believe that Charles might have later piloted a private plane at some point in his escape, so they pulled old plane registrations from the FAA. After finding a list of 10 registration numbers, they ordered a microfish for the archive documents in Oklahoma. I didn't know what a microfish was. Well, I did know what it was because I had a lot of us have seen it before, but I didn't know what the term was. It's microfish or microfilm. You might have seen it in movies or at the library yeah. if you look at old newspapers or yeah. something. And it's actually they reduce documents. It's how they used to store documents pre-computers. They they could reduce it to about five percent of its original size, and then you would need to enlarge it with magnification. So it's just a good way to store old documents. Um, and this is how these researchers did actually a lot of their investigation was like finding these really old archive documents and then using this magnification to to find the information. So this is actually how the Gardeners found Charles's plane. He had sold it to a man named Fullwood and then Fullwood sold it to a man named Anthony Pitts. This connected the story to the nervous welder that walked into the office a day after the murders. And this name opened the investigation up to all of Charles's associates, which was a huge breakthrough. Apparently, Anthony Pitts might have been Charles in disguise, or he might have been a close friend of Charles. They also found that Charles might have had CIA contacts before the murder of his parents. Eventually, these connections led them to a man named John Mackey, a business associate. John had died years before the Gardeners discovered him, but his widowed wife was still alive and she told the Gardeners all she knew. She was so open about her husband's criminal activities because John had cheated on her during his international business trips, and their marriage was in rough shape by the end. In the 60s, John had run a few mining businesses in Mexico and Honduras for investors in Texas. When he needed a professional seismologist to make sure they were digging in the right place, he actually hired Charles Rogers. He was their most trusted guy when it came to striking gold, And through this business, he built plenty of international connections. And according to the Gardeners, he ended up making it all the way to Honduras after he killed his parents. They also mentioned that an eyewitness met and spoke to Charles in Honduras after the murder had occurred. And they believe he was later murdered there after a wage dispute with a local mining crew. Apparently, they had actually bashed him to death with pickaxes and thrown his body into a nearby river. And his remains were later found downstream. This river happened to be filled with piranhas, which had eaten parts of his skin and muscle. And the heat had made his remains decay pretty quickly when he washed up on shore. So he couldn't be identified. When local officers interviewed John Mackey and asked about the corpse, he told them he had no idea who it could have been. After compiling all the Gardener's research, this is what they believed happened to Charles Rogers. And then there's another book named The Man on the Grassy Knoll, which was published in 1992 and written by John R. Craig and Philip A. Rogers. The theories in this book stretch much further than the Icebox murders. They wrote about Charles's life, his crimes, and they claim that he might have been involved in the assassination of JFK. As the theory goes, 
Charles Rogers met other conspirators through his Civil Air Patrol unit, and later he worked with Charles Harrelson, who was a hitman involved in organized crime, and later assassinated a federal judge in 1979. He was also the father of the famous actor, Woody Harrelson. God, that is so wild. Yeah, I never knew that. that is, yeah, that's crazy. The book claims that Charles Rogers, Charles Harrelson, and another man named Chauncey Holt were the three tramps. The three tramps is this photograph that several Dallas newspapers ran recently after the JFK assassination. And it's basically just these three men who it looks like they're being escorted by police, whether they're being detained or if they're being escorted because they're being protected or for some reason, there's a lot of theories around it. But a lot of people believe that the three men in the photograph had something to do with the assassinations. And so I think there's a real possibility. It is possible. He was, I mean, it would explain a lot too. I mean, he's such a secretive dude and kept such a low profile. Yeah, and I mean, he lived he could have in been Texas rap- at yeah, the time, right? You know? Right. And he has CIA contacts and stuff, like, which, yeah, don't even get me started on the CIA and JFK. But did you see that recently? There was a document that was previously um, had redacted information on it. And I think it pretty much confirms that the CIA played a role in his assassination. I'm not even so which is crazy yeah but that's crazy that's confirmed this is interesting this is kind of a side note to this but in 1992 congress passed the president john f kennedy assassination records collection act that act mandated full disclosure of all documents by 2017 54 years after jfk was killed the last administration which would have been the trump administration promised to comply fully with that law but under intense pressure from cia director mike pompeo withheld in the end thousands of pages of CIA documents. Today, this afternoon, the Biden administration did exactly the same thing. That would be thousands of pages of documents after nearly 60 years after the death of every single person involved, but we still can't see them. They spoke to someone who had access to these hidden CIA documents, a person who is deeply familiar with what they contained, and they asked that person directly, did the CIA have a hand in the murder of John F. Kennedy, an American president? And the reply they received verbatim was, the answer is yes. I believe they were involved. It's a whole different country from what they thought it was. It's all fake. So they released a bunch of, during the Trump presidency, they released a bunch of JFK files. The National Archives did. But when you go through it, there's all the names redacted from it. Right. But there's strong evidence to suggest, based on the articles that have been released, and there's another document from uh, the NSA uh, archives that is titled ex-CIA agent claims he bought rifles for Kennedy killing. So, I mean, there's, I mean, there's tons of evidence. These are just a couple examples, but it seems very obvious that the CIA played at least some part in the assassination of, of JFK. And I don't even want to get into the reasons for why that is, but to think that Woody Harrelson's father, Charles Rogers, and this Chauncey Holt, the three tramps were also somehow involved because obviously in order to pull this off the number of people that would have to be because i mean that's what people's rebuttal is to a lot of conspiracy theories is like to pull that off i mean you got to have a lot of people in On the know board. of this yeah. of this plan and so you know can all those people keep keep quiet about it and things like that so right. but to think that charles rogers may have possibly been involved is is pretty crazy So almost two decades later, 
Charles Harrelson had a standoff with police in September 1982 after killing a federal judge. Apparently, he was high on cocaine during the six-hour standoff with police, and he actually confessed that he killed JFK. In the book The Man on the Grassy Knoll, the authors also claim that Charles Rogers was identified by friends and relatives as one of the tramps in the photograph. But one of the homicide detectives that originally worked on the murder case said that the theory was far-fetched. Still, the book claimed that Charles Harrelson and Charles Rogers were the sharpshooters on the grassy knoll. That's those, crazy. Yeah, and if you wow. don't know about the grassy knoll, which is a big thing in JFK conspiracy theories, uh, it was just a small sloping hill on the north side of the plaza where JFK was assassinated. And a lot of people think that that's where possibly a second or third shooter could have been stationed. Yeah, I mean, just, just the whole, the way the shootings went down and how precise they were. Yeah, they seems. also, I know that they looking into Lee Harvey Oswald's uh, history. He wasn't really that good of a marksman, supposedly. No, so no, and, where... and the shots required to do this at the range at which they were shot from would line up more with somebody with extensive, you know, sharpshooting abilities. So, yeah. which pretty... I'm not sure if Charles did. We, his history is kind of a mystery. We know he was in the Navy. He flew airplanes. Right. I wasn't, I don't know. I, would he I have the shooting abilities to to do that that's what i'm not sure about because i don't know how much training and actual firearms he had but yeah it's definitely some i mean it's just could be true could not be true but it's definitely interesting to consider but the authors of the book also believe that charles rogers was a cia agent who impersonated lee harvey oswald he killed the president and then fled to mexico city and they think that charles also killed his parents because edwina was catching on to her son's involvement in the assassination that's pretty interesting because again I, I go back to why kill your parents when they're elderly right yeah at the end of their life when allegedly this abuse had been going on through his entire childhood you know why wait till the very end of their life to do that if and continue living with them i mean it seems like the opportunity was there to potentially murder his parents prior to when when he did if he actually murdered yeah them. i think that's one of the biggest questions about this case is like what was the straw that broke the camel's yeah. back like what really set him off after this entire time right and based on all this other information that we have about charles rogers i'm i'm starting to wonder if the crime matches the the, the killer you know it does it you know is charles capable of of doing this and why would he do it in this way yeah, it seems pretty like if his mom did find out about something that was going on, why would he go so far out of his way to like drain the bodies and mutilate yeah. them and and dismember them and then storm in the fridge? Like it almost doesn't make sense. It for, really doesn't for a cover up murder or something, right? Why would you leave the remains to be found? Yeah, if you're gonna at all, why wouldn't you take those with you and? I mean, if you're able to disappear, why not make the bodies disappear too? Yeah. Yeah, it's really weird. There's something There's something very off about it. I mean, clearly there's something off about it, but just from the way that it all went down and how they were found, it seems very strange. And also just how clueless the police were with it too. Oh yeah, and they missed like, I think the reason that they wanted to make him seem like, oh, he's this shut-in, he's no one to ever fit the sees narrative, him. right? Yeah, yeah. it's like, it makes it easier for them too because it's like we can't find anything out because this guy's a shut-in which really we find out later he kind of wasn't yeah he was like kind of socially stunted but he did have a long-term girlfriend he talked to people through the ham radio you know like we did 
he did have things going on in his life, but they almost made it seem like he was just this mysterious guy. Madman that's just like brewing in his room and right. he just exploded one day and yeah. went crazy and it's convenient that he's missing now because then they can just pin it on him and be like, oh, it's Charles and we don't know where Charles is. So right. that's the end of the case there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's actually pretty common to see this where police, you know, rather than investigating it properly or, you know, going above and beyond to try to figure things out, they kind of take the easy approach, you know, the most logical to them, right? It's like, oh, well, Son was abused, so it makes sense that someone killed the parents, and then he took off, and now he's on the run. So, you know, bada bing, bada boom, we got the case solved. You know what I mean? But there's, you know, no evidence to suggest that he did. Yeah, yeah. At all. Yeah, it's just, oh, he's (laughs) dead in absentia. Let's knock down the house. Let's move on. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's, it's very weird. And I almost wonder if, what if Charles, like, orchestrated this or, you know, had a, maybe he had an inside connection with the police or something like that. I mean, if he's really wrapped up in the CIA and he's, you know, part of, he's a part of these elaborate plots, could he have somehow swayed the police to kind of go that direction? Or, I mean, it seems possible even that Charles was not the one who even did the murders at all. And that they had a, he knew a professional. It just seems like a very professional job Yeah, to go to the point of draining bodies of blood. Like, right. That's a big, yeah, it seems like he sicked a dog on them that he maybe had some connection of like, yeah, I got to get rid of my parents. Who should I call? Maybe right. is this guy capable of it? I have no idea. I wish we knew a little bit more about his history um, to kind of get in his head, but he just seems like we don't have enough info. And also, if he did sick someone on his parents, why would they do it in such a way? And it seems like they had so much time to like completely get rid of all the evidence. Yeah. Because if they didn't find them until three days later, why leave the bodies like that? Why leave any evidence? Yeah. If you go through the process of of draining the blood, cleaning up the entire house. Because I mean, I'm just thinking too, I'm like, this would have been a bloodbath. Yeah. If it went down the way that the police said, there's, there's no way that they're and again, this was the sixties. Will you look, will you look up or somebody look up? Did they have luminol testing in the sixties? Because I'm thinking, oh, I'm like, question. if they're, if they're literally would have been everywhere, yeah, there would have been blood spatter all over that place to, to kill somebody with a claw hammer. There's no way you're going to clean up the whole house of all evidence, except for one little trail. And the fact that the only blood they find is a trail coming out of Charles's bedroom to me that doesn't make sense yeah, doesn't there's really. something off about that there that seems potentially even made up again we don't have proof of this and of course it's coming out of charles bedroom why would charles charles is a brilliant guy if he did do it why would he even risk trailing blood into his room that makes no sense so it looks like luminol first synthesized in 1902 oh and then it was used the actual application for it was discovered in 1937. That's so they for sure had luminol testing then. by the 60s. Yeah. So either they just didn't, they likely just didn't do it. To me, this smells cover up so strong. The smells yeah. so strong. Yeah. Cause like there's it, no way there's blood spatter. Yeah. There would have to be. It'd be on the walls. Also, the gunshot in the bedroom, what they didn't find any blood from. After he shot his... Yeah, a point-blank execution-style shot is going to cause blood spatter, yeah. 100%. And it's going to be so small, too. The human eye is not going to be... So unless this person, 
literally did their own luminol test, lit it all up, and then yeah, it would take days to do, yeah. to clean that up. And he only he had what two three days max. There's no way that he kills him in this manner, d- dismembers, drains blood, cleans the whole house, and then gets out of town without anybody seeing him or or without a trace. Yeah, there's no way. To me, it seems like Charles was never there in the first place. He could have been somewhere else the entire time, maybe even another country, and he sent somebody else in to do it. And or even, I mean, I'm suspicious of the police, honestly, too. I'm yeah. like, this just doesn't add up. No, it doesn't. I mean, I th- I think also the fact that if it was three days after, he could have been so far gone. Even if he did commit the murder, he could have been so far gone because we knew he was a pilot, you know. But then, especially if he had sicked someone else on his parents, he would have been. But know, they checked. They anywhere. checked the airfields. Yeah. So they there's did. no evidence of Charles. You have to register planes going in and out of airfields. Mm-hmm. So there's no trace of him ever flying a plane out of there. Any planes? I mean, again, we're missing a lot of information here. So we're trying to, you know, we're speculating on things that there's probably more info on. We just don't have access yeah. to it. My guess is he probably used fake names. He had some connections yeah, and hookups right. and he was able to get a plane and get the hell out of there. If he committed the murders. Yeah. Or even if he didn't, I don't know. Just, I mean, if you, if you buy into the JFK thing, maybe he just wanted to get out of the country. Cause like the, the way that the JFK theory goes is that his parents, his dad may have been like listening in, which I'm just Here's like, mom, yeah. it's like, mm, what are the chances of that happening? You know, where they hear, where, where they get, he's in his room, locks his door, you know, ham radio, you got headphones on. And like, if he was having these like mysterious phone calls and ham radio conversations, I mean, these guys are elderly. Their hearing's probably not great. <laughs> That's so, a good point. So I'm like, about how, that. what are the chances that they are, if he was involved in the JFK assassination, what are the chances that his parents just happen over here? Like murder JFK, like, you know, in his yeah, room and they're yeah, like, right. like, Oh my God, Oh my God, we need to yeah. report this to the authority. Yeah. Also, if this dude could speak seven languages and was super smart, he was probably speaking in code. Yeah. Or like something totally. Like that, right? There's just no way that it was just like, Oh, we just happened over here that yeah. you're going to kill the president. Yeah. And it seemed like, yeah, if it was a cover up murder, why do it so horrifically? Right. It kind of doesn't track. Well, that's the thing too, is like, you look at hitman murders and usually it's very clean cut. I mean, be in and out type of thing versus yeah. like why go through the pro- this process of why I just don't know why you dismember the body, then put it in the freaking refrigerator. Yeah. There's something psychologically going on that that's just, I, I can't really wrap my head around why someone would do that. Which based on the way, the way that the scene looks, the way the bodies are found the fact that the killer cut off the, you know, Fred's genitals and gouged his eyes out and the fact they're dismembered and blood drained. I see how the authorities would be like, this is a crime of passion. Somebody close to the victims took out, you know, took out the revenge on them. And so I get why they honed in on Charles, but I think they did themselves a disservice by only considering Charles. Yeah. And not looking, not going beyond that. They just went with the easiest path. I mean, if they're not involved in this somehow, which I'm not totally convinced that they're not, they just went like, it was Charles. Charles was pissed. He finally got sick of it, took revenge, killed his parents, tortured them, whatever, gouged their eyes out because he's... 
but it's like that would also that would also suggest that this individual is is a psychopath is deranged and mentally unstable i mean to to go to the point of dismembering anybody you, you're questioning their sanity right like right. to do that to another human being i mean that is like probably the just most heinous evil thing you could possibly do to somebody and to, to actually go through with that i just don't know based on what we know about charles when other people said it, unless charles is just like this evil genius you know what i mean and he can like fool everybody um that he comes into contact with in the public but then behind closed doors he's just this like absolutely seething psychopath that is planning this most heinous murders of his parents i just don't know i just don't know if it matches up yeah and the fact that he's able to get out of town and vanish without a trace at all yeah in a few days and it must be embarrassing that this couple 30 some years after the fact had found way more information it was some accountants that just looked deeper into the case and they were figuring out things that the police weren't figuring out off of public records right seems like they just half-assed something or there's something else going on yeah i think as we as we find in a lot of cases from this time period i mean I, I'm, I'm thinking of like the son of sam case for example is another one where the police got it so wrong they had no idea what they were doing and just it ends up being somebody entirely entirely different from who you know sometimes the police because of the pressure from the public want to get things closed up real quick mm -hmm. right they want this to be a clear cut they don't want the public to, to be scared that there's this evil person that's chopping people up and you know running around on the loot you know on the loose and they have no idea who it is so obviously this is this type of murder makes news people are people are upset by it they're scared and so i think they just i think police were under so much pressure to just get this solved that they were like and based on how everything looked but to me this looks like frame it to look like charles but this is not charles i just have a hard time believing that this is charles and i think this is somebody else um potentially some type of professional hitman and maybe this was a request maybe charles it was a murder for hire type of deal where charles hired somebody to do this and i just feel like charles is too smart um has too much going on in his life to want to do like maybe he wanted to do this but why would he do it himself yeah when he had the resources potentially the contacts to have somebody else do it for him he seems too smart right unless if he was just totally taken over by some right. emotional right again problem. we don't know his mental stability and yeah. things like that but i mean based on the, i mean i don't know he's either an evil genius or he had somebody else do this for him or there's always a possibility that was somebody out to get charles even Mm. could it have been somebody who was trying to get charles in trouble made the whole thing it almost looks like frame the fact that the only blood found is coming out of charles's room is strange to me i'm like why would charles do that and of course they find like the saw is right is charles. it convenient like, if you're that smart yeah why would you even leave the saw around yeah i mean especially in your bedroom i question the forensic i've I, the forensic analysis by by the police too yeah i, I have a hard time believing that somebody in the time frame that they say they were dead for was able to take a little saw like that and saw apart two whole humans that take a long time yeah. and drain them i mean just think about the amount of work the amount of i mean the effort to saw through bone 
I mean, you look at when doctors nowadays amputate bodies. I mean, they're using bone saw. I mean, they're using like a power saw. So you're sitting there sawing right, each guy, limb off like in the little pieces saw. to fit into yeah. a fridge. Yeah. Something like doesn't add up. This is way time, too yeah. fishy, man. Yeah. And disemboweling them. Yeah. Although they're, you know, that would take a long time. And if that, if the, why didn't the police ever try to get evidence? Why didn't they like, you know, have somebody come in and like clear the, the sewage drain and right. actually see if they can find evidence of human entrails, you know? Yeah. Where, where then did yeah. they just flush the entrails right. down the pipe? Yeah. Like where'd that go? That doesn't make sense to me. There's so many things that make absolutely no sense to me in this case. And I see why it's unsolved because there's so many different ways you can go. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Was it, you know, I, I think the, the narrative that the police put forward is utter bullshit though. I don't think, I don't think it went down the way that they said it was. It, there's just doesn't make sense. There's too many things. This was either multiple people involved in this. To me, it seems like there's multiple people involved in this because the amount of work required to reduce two bodies to fit into a refrigerator and do all the things that they said they did one person, it would take a long, long time to do that, especially if it's your first time. Yeah. That's, if you're, it's your first murder and this is how you do it. Like this to me sounds like a serial killer. Somebody who's done this over and over and over again. I was going to say this. Who's got thing. experience, who knows how to methodically. This is like after the escalation period, usually for a serial killer, like right. to get to the, where you're, taking out the bowels of yeah, somebody totally blood chopping them up you know this isn't your first murder. this isn't a first murder yeah. at all there's just no way absolutely no way that charles just like lost his shit and murdered his parents in this way and managed to do all these things and then take off and without a trace my guess is he was never even there he wasn't even there yeah somebody else or multiple people came in and did this and i mean there's even a chance that whoever did this is still out there perhaps I mean, this did happen quite a long time ago because, I mean, if we look at Charles based on, you know, his age, if he were still alive today and perhaps he's down in Honduras or whatever, I mean, he'd be 101 years old. So yeah, he's, he's probably he's likely now. dead now. Yeah. But whoever committed these murders, in my opinion, may still be out there. And I mean, they'd be very old, uh, most likely, but there's always a chance that they're out there. Fun fact, uh, Hugh Gardner, the one of the authors of the book, he actually took a metal detector out to the area where they demoed the house, and the last little trace he found of him was just some pieces of a ham radio. That was like the last thing they ever wow. found of him. And I and I do appreciate their investigation into this, but I don't think they found enough to. Yeah, to, there's no to, like to support. Yeah, even the police's narrative. I mean, they're. I mean, clearly. I mean, what they did find is that the police didn't really do jack shit with <laughs> right. this one. Yeah. They didn't really investigate this at all. They just kind of, which just I don't know. This screams cover up. Somebody framing Charles, perhaps, or this is some type of professional hit job or something. Because it just doesn't make sense for Charles to be the one to be the killer here, in my opinion. But I could be completely wrong for all we know. But I do want to know what you think about this case, because this one is just, I mean, I'm going to be thinking about this one for the rest of the day, that's for sure. There's just so many different angles to look at it and possibilities, but I would love to know your thoughts on it. So let us know in the comments if you're watching on YouTube. If you're watching on Spotify, make sure you're following us on social media at Lights Out Cast, and you, know, you can always uh, email us as well. We have a suggestion form uh, for topics that you'd like to see on the show coming up. But that is where I'm going to wrap up today's episode. We will see you next week with another one. And until then, 
lights out. Ev.